Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Advisor Shares. Ben, do you know, historically, without looking, what is the weakest month of the year for the stock market? I would have guessed October just because that was a 1987 crash, but that that's just like the guess. That's what I would have guessed, right? That's a great guess because October 1987, I think there's a, well, October 2008, there's a few others that were bad. It's September. Actually, I guess September 08 was a bad one too. Yeah, I guess September 1929, that was the, the peak for the Great Depression crash. So we're approaching seasonally one of the weakest times in the year. August is not so great either, but September is bad. The average monthly performance for the S&P 500 in September is negative 1.1%. The second weakest month is February, just down 0.13%. So this is an average. So you have to take this with a grain of salt. So did there, Ben? Got it. Nailed it. But there's uh, so, so some seasonal weakness coming. Anyhow, with that said, Advisor Shares have been working with Dorsey Wright, the legendary, uh, I guess I, I know him as a tactical manager. And there's a Dorsey Wright short ETF, the ETF shorts stocks, individual stocks. So it's not like it's not like tail risk where if the market's down, this could be like like up magnified. It's just, it's it's I guess it's a hedge for lack of a better word, right? It's short individual names. Yeah, DWSH is the ticker, and the, it, it's not exactly a one for one. But in 2022, this thing was up almost 18 percent. The market was down 18 percent. This year, it's down double digits as the market's up double digits. So yeah, it's a hedge. If you want like a one for one, the opposite direction this is what you would invest in. As always, do your own research. Please hit the link in the show notes to learn more about this product. The ticker is DWSH, link in show notes. You could use this for your, your paper short that you're using for the for your tactical bearish call. I took that off. Oh, you took your tactical short off? Okay. Yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd use this fund, I guess. All right. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Housekeeping, real quick, real quick. We've got Future Proof coming up in two weeks. I am excited. Ben, are you excited? I'm very excited. I can't wait. If you're an advisor there, coming to see the content, maybe coming to see us, interested in learning how we work with advisors at Ritholtz Wealth Management, reach out to us. We'd love to see you and set up a time to, to chat. Email hiring at RitholtzWealth.com. But if you want to meet with us, you have to wear a Tropical Bros shirt. That's the rules. That's the rules. We don't make them, but in this case, we do. Okay. Uh, I want to start the show with an email that came in last week. Good morning, guys. On this week's podcast, you were wondering who is still traveling for business. Then, of course, laughed at how often you both were traveling. Yep. Guilty. Uh, I recently worked in acquisitions for whatever, whatever. We had a very lenient work from home policy, as in employees lived almost in almost uh, 30 states. For our group, Every two weeks, people would be required to come to the office for a couple of days. Every month, the company required all employees to be on site for team bonding. That meant every month, the company flew half the employees to New York City and put them up for a few days. Very few people traveled for conferences, and most of our deals were done via Zoom, but those off these office visits were expenses business travel. Caveat, this is a personal anecdote, but if this is replicated more broadly, it could explain some of the high numbers. 
That makes sense. So it's almost so, like more, more people could be traveling. So work from home, paradoxically, is causing more business travel? That's weird. Yeah, but it, it, that actually makes sense. I, I kind of get it. So, yeah, interesting. Um, P.S., the phrase to the hilt has a gruesome backstory. A few people emailed us on this one. This idiom alludes to the handle of a, or, or also known as the hilt of a sword. The only portion that remains out when the weapon is plunged all the way in. The figurative use of the term was first recorded in 1687. I like it. So that's like you you got to make sure it's all the way in there. There we go. Um, all right. So, Ben, this is where this is a garden variety correction in the stock market. And I wanted to ask you, speaking of uh, idioms and sorts, where does that phrase come from? Garden variety? I saw somebody say, call something else a garden variety, not correction. When I hear the term garden variety, the next word that comes into my head is correction. But I heard somebody say a garden variety... I can't remember what they were talking about. Where does that one come from? Garden variety? Someone's going to have to email us on this. I, I've, I've never looked that one up before. I, I just figure everything comes from Shakespeare. Haven't you seen those blog posts that say like the 25 sayings we use today that come from Shakespeare? So I'm guessing it comes from Shakespeare. Good guess. Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it seem like I was filling up the doc this morning because uh, you've abdicated your responsibilities again and left it all to me. Dude, that is Two fake. out of three weeks. That is, that is fake news. Are you... F- are you kidding me? 90%. 90% at least is me. That is so not true. <laughs> All right. 90%? What are you, nuts? 90. I'm going to have Sean do an audit of this when we're done. <laughs> 90%? Dude. 90. I, I, that's crazy talk. Okay. That's crazy talk. I, I won't even I won't even uh, relent to, I won't even give you 55. I, I would maybe stretch to 53. Okay. Okay. It's at least 70. It's like 70, 30, but- no, Who's not counting? even close. Who's not, a, not, a, not close. But don't, doesn't it seem like markets are just more boring to talk about when things are up? I, I feel like you have to look harder to, to find topics of things to talk about because the, the stock market is still up. S&P's up 16% this year still. NASDAQ's up 36 or 37. Still? Wow. Still, right? It's, I know you talk about garden variety correction, but it's not, it hasn't been that much of a correction. Here's something. I was challenged to a bit of a duel on Twitter a couple weeks um, last week. I said something about bonds and... Rob Isbitz, who writes for ETF.com, said, I'm going to write a, like a bearish piece on bonds in the 60-40. Because my point was, listen, bonds were an awful bet when interest rates were 1% or below. Or below. What's the, uh, can I just ask, what's the, what's the deal with the Rubik's Cube there? You practicing? Uh, no, you know, I've got it here. I don't know where it came from. And I just spin it. I don't know how it works. Okay. I, I not intel- I'm not clever enough to... to- do you know how this works? My kids have one, and there. If you Google it, there's a way to. There's a certain way of turning it that that, like there's a there's some sort of pattern that you do. Oh yeah, no, I know that there. I know that there are ways. Yeah, people know how to do it. I just don't. Yeah, but, but it, I, I think turning it makes me feel like I'm doing a brain exercise, even though I'm okay. not even looking. It's at like it. it's like your Tom Cruise bat in a few good men. You just carry it for like good luck. Anyway, so Roz, Rob Isbeth wrote, wrote this piece, and I think there's a lot of stuff out there that the, the idea that like when rates and inflation are higher, correlations for stocks and bonds go up and that makes the any diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds not worth as much. So he said for nearly two decades, investment advisors and self-directed investors came to understand and appreciate asset allocation as a complementary combination of stocks and bonds. When rates were falling, bond prices were rising and stock market was driving higher in those easier credit conditions, that combination worked very well. Powell's latest message prompts advisors and investors to focus their attention on what to do about their portfolios with the possibility of a quick Fed cut likely off the table unless it's in response to a financial crisis. With so much money and sentiment having rallied around 60-40 concept until both stocks and bonds fell in tandem in 2022, 
the potential for a profitable restart just took a hit. It's up to advisors to adjust to that. Now, I think there is something to the fact that correlations increase in an inflationary environment. I get that. But I think what happened in 2022 was maybe one of the biggest one-offs in history, going from zero to 5%. That's just not going to happen again. And I think a lot of people misunder, misinterpret the idea of stocks and bonds as like, when stocks go up, bonds go down. And when bonds, you know, stocks go down, bonds go up. But it hasn't always been like that. I did this a while ago, I have to update it. But I looked at from like the 1930s to the, I think I did it in 2013. So this is on the way that machine for Ben's blog. It was like 60% of the time stocks and bonds rise together in the same year, which makes sense because bonds haven't fallen all that much historically. So, so like most of the time, stocks and bonds are moving up in tandem. It's not like they're going in, op they're not, they're not going in opposite directions. And I think the, the idea that you need rates to fall for bonds to work is, is also a misnomer because now that yields are higher, all you, you just need the yields to stay where they are and you'll do fine. Yeah. Right? You, don't, you don't need the yields to fall. for the, the reason bonds did so well, sure, falling rates helped, but the reason bonds did so well from the 80s forward was because the higher yields were so. The yields were so high. The, start, the starting yields were so high. Higher for longer is not a bad thing. In no. fact, I would rather uh, rates stay at 5% and you just clip the 5%, then rates go from 5 to 3%. And then, oh, cool, you've got 12% price appreciation or whatever it is. And then you're only back to clipping 3%. I'd rather rates stay where they are. That'd be great. Yes. If you're a bond investor, this would be, this. if rates just stay still, you're you're fine. Right? Obviously, if rates rise, you're, you're not doing as well, but you still have a, you have a much bigger margin of safety when the starting rates are 4 or 5% than you did when they're 50 basis points or 1%. So I don't, I don't think that the idea that the 60-40 is screwed makes any sense. All right. Nick Majuli, he knows how to do like computer stuff. Like, you know, the what's the program called R or something, which mm -hmm. I, I still don't know what that is. Like, oh, I, I program on R. I don't know what that is. I'm more of a Python guy. Okay. I don't really know what that is either. So either. Nick created, first he created an S&P 500 total return calculation going using Robert Schiller's data going way back. And now he did one for dollar cost averaging. And it's just a simple DCA calculator. You can do it by month. You can do an initial investment and then a monthly investment. So I wanted to see, well, how has dollar cost averaging worked in this bear market, right? You start putting 500 bucks a month in January, 2022, which is right when the market peaked, right? It was like the second or third day of trading. I think last year, the market peaked, you put $500 a month in every month. How have you done up till the end of July? Cause this is a monthly calculator. Not bad. Your total contributions, $9,000. You walked away with almost $10,000. Your IRR on a nominal basis was over 13%. So IRR takes the the cash flows and you know the timing of the cash flows into account. Even with inflation, you're up almost nine percent. You know why dollar cost averaging works? Because it's a it's a reverse Ponzi scheme. You're just you're paying yourself every month, right? So even if you go through a lost decade, a lost four years, or whatever it is, your accounts depend. I mean, you know, depending on how bad the the drawdown is, of, of course you could lose money. I <laughs> that goes without saying, but you're paying yourself. It works better when it works better in a bear market than it does in a bull market. Yeah, given enough time, sure. But it's just, it's a forced way to, to save money. I don't know of any other better way to do it. We often talk about like, here are the returns from the, from the low of the bear market. Or here are the returns from the peak. And we look at things on like a very point in time. But most people's lives are, they're periodically investing because that's when they have savings come in. They invest from their income. So you have like a million different points over the course of your investing life cycle where you're investing every two weeks or every week, every month or whatever, every quarter, whatever it is, however often you save, it, it doesn't always make sense to look at things from a one, because people will often say like, well, look at back historically, the S&P 500 went nowhere for 15 years or whatever. 
and, and it had this period where inflation adjusted from 1966 to 1982, whatever it is. And it's like, that's, that is true. But most people's experience is not a one point to another point. It usually doesn't work like that. People are putting money in or they're taking money out or they're, you know, they're, there's something, they're rebalancing, something's going on. It's not always just a static one-to-one, this to A to B kind of thing. Yeah. Mo- most people's experience in the market is not, all right, I've got a million dollars and I dropped it all in and now I'm just, now I'm just one for one with the market. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it's not, not as static as that. Uh, also over that, since January, 2022, the S and down four and a half percent now. So if we last year, one of the worst years ever combined with this year, and we're back to a garden variety correction, right? Duncan gave us the meaning. Uh, the expression alludes to a plant likely to be cultivated in a typical garden expected to produce a respectable harvest or attractive blooms. That doesn't help very much. It's like a garden variety definition of garden variety. <laughs> it really is. Didn't help us very. Okay. Michael Antonelli, this is, a, this is a good one for the haters. Remember when people said the SVB thing was a brand new QE and the Fed would never reduce their balance sheet? He says, wrong again, doomers. This is from Strategus, and it shows the Fed's balance sheet. It had that little increase there from the banking crisis, but now it, it continues to fall. And so I, I think a lot of people have been trying to hang their hat on, well, actually, the Fed is still, is still manipulating markets. That's the only reason they're up this year. I don't think many people would have thought uh, Fed balance sheet is falling, interest rates are rising, there's no way the stock market can rise. I think a lot of people have been waiting for this scenario. This The, the rates are going to rise, Fed's going to pull out, and the stock market is going down 80%. That's been like the doomer's dream for well over a decade. Not happening. No. Nothing? All right, let's look at something else that I put in the doc that you haven't put in. I don't think we had one Michael contribution. I'm just saying, if, if we're keeping, if we're scoring here. Excuse me. We started, we, we started the show with something that I put in. All right, you know what? Fine. If you're going to be petty, fine. We'll keep a score. All right, let's go. Duncan, Duncan will keep track on the video. All right. From the Washington Post, this, this is investor behavior here. Uh, share of non-retired Americans who feel retirement, their retirement saving plan is on track. This is good because th- this is the, I feel better. Time out. Up. Time out. Did somebody just make this chart by hand? Where did this come from? It's from the Washington Post. So the, the Federal Reserve does these surveys every year like the consumer or something survey. So it asks people like, how do you feel about your retirement? And <laughs> hang on, I'm sorry. This this survey goes back to 1850? Oh, wait, you're looking at the wrong one. Look at the one above uh, it. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to show the, then I, hand, I got the hand 18. up. Yeah. So it's it's really, it's, it's really not that high of a, it, it's like 36%, 37%, got the 40% in 2021. Things are feeling good. And then it immediately drops to 31% in 2022 because stocks and bonds fell and people thought we were going to recession, I guess. I guess this is just the ultimate sentiment indicator of, of things get worse. I feel worse about myself. But, but like the whole point of saving for retirement is you're going to be having to save for decades and decades into the future. And if, if one bear market is going to make you feel like you're off track, like you should, you should expect, I don't know, 10 to 12 bear markets over the course of your lifetime, probably. Maybe three to four market crash scenarios in there. My whole point is that like that should be in your retirement plan. Your retirement plan shouldn't feel worse just because there's a bear market. That should be part of it. I wonder what the actual question is. Do you think the question is simply, do you feel you're on track for retirement? That is fair. The, 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 this is why we're anti-survey because a lot of it is, is how you feel and how, yeah, how it's worded. Also, how many people know whether or not they're on track? What does that even mean? You think most people have a plan? Okay. So how many percent, what percent of the population has a retirement plan in place? It might be like a third. 
Like it might be I'd like say, I, I'd say less. Really? But also, yeah. Yeah. But also, do you think people are likely to overestimate or underestimate how well they're doing financially? I would say generally it would be you'd be you'd underestimate. There's no benefit to say I'm great. I'll be fine. Yeah, that's true. So this this other chart that I put in here, uh, I'm reading this. I can't remember how I got in this book. It's one of those, I'm reading a nonfiction book and then I read a study in the source and I go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so I'm reading this book called The Evolution of Retirement because this stuff, I don't know, kind of fascinates me. And it's it goes back to the 1800s how basically there was no such thing as retirement before. Life was just awful back then. And this shows the people who were gainfully employed at age 55 to 64 and 65 plus. So in 1850, 95% of people who were age 55 to 64 were still working. And this this only goes to 1990 because this book was actually written in the 90s. 65 plus, it was almost 80%. And so the, the whole idea, the concept of retirement is still relatively new. I think it was more or less invented. People started really retiring and having a, a life of leisure in like the 50s and 60s. Before then, it, like leisure didn't exist for retired people. Like 50% of people lived with their kids still. And their kids took care of them and that was their retirement plan. I wonder what retirement is going to look like in the future. Because when people retired, maybe not our parents, but if people retired like in, I don't know, 2000 or whatever, what did you do? What do you mean without like- Well, my, there's there's a lot more to stimulate people these days than there was in the past. There's a lot more things to- I, I think people actually could relax. I don't think it's easy to relax these days because you can always check your phone or email. A lot more or... stimulants, a lot more recreational activities. Pickleball. There's no pickleball back in the day. That's true. I, I could see you getting into pickleball. No. Nah. No? No interest. Okay. I would do. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the people who hate on pickleball. I, I'm not, I don't think it's like a sport. Like it shouldn't be televised on ESPN, but I could, see having, I could see having fun with it. I'm going against the grain on this one. All right. From the Wash, uh, Wall Street Journal, the best age to make good financial decisions. Did you read this one or no? I did. Okay. So you already know the answer. This is one of the reasons that like having a good, your, your whole idea of having a retirement plan is like the, the amount of people, because it says that the optimal age to, age to make your best decisions is what, 53 or 54? I buy that. That's, um, you know, when you're middle-aged. But <laughs> that's middle-aged plus. But they, but they talk about, they went through all these things like auto loans and credit cards and home equity lines of credit, and all these things. Like when do you, when are you at your best time to make the decisions? And it has to do with experience and expertise in these areas and th this is, to your point, why there's probably not many people with a retirement plan, because if you wait this long to be able to make good decisions on it, like that's, it's almost too late. You can still play catch up at this age, but for most people, they, they kind of figure it out in their, I don't know, late forties, early fifties. And by then, like the, the good stuff that you could have done when you're younger, that time has passed you. So it's like, you have all the time in the world for compounding when you're young, but you don't have any money or expertise. And then when you're older, you have more money and income, but you don't have the time for compounding. It's kind of a cruel irony if you think about it. Yeah. I'm thinking about the, this study. Uh, how much time and money was spent on this? <laughs> probably a lot. Right? Probably a lot. But they got a lot of publicity probably on it, don't you think? And what's what's like the what's the actionable takeaway? I don't know. Most people are screwed when it comes to their finances. <laughs> I guess. It, yeah. Good, good point. So you're saying academics are... Uh, are useless. No, but I'm saying this is this is very academic. All right. Another one of our favorite academic ones. Uh, what's the JP Morgan study called? Agony and ecstasy? So it's like 40% of all companies in Russell 3000 
had a 70% decline in price from peaks and they never re returned. So I pulled, I was looking at AMC the other day because that was, remember people were putting signs on their garage doors and putting signs in their cars being like AMC to the moon. And this was like, I'm going to take down the, the man using AMC stock, which is still beyond me how a movie theater stock ever got to that point. Well, it's down 98% now from the highs. And I think it's below where it started before the pandemic. Other Peloton's still down 97%. Teladoc's down 93%. Zoom is down 88%. Robinhood is down 85%. Uh, all these the GameStops even down to 80%. These are those stocks of that study, right? It, like we've talked in recent months about like Netflix and Facebook and some of these other companies coming back. But these are the companies that are probably never going to see those 2021 peaks again. Oh, never. And not even close, right? No, no, no. <laughs> right? Like you could no. you could buy these stocks for a trade and I don't know, make 40 or 50, but if you're you know, anchoring to 2021 peaks, that that's just it's never going to happen. Well, this is this is the the flaw in the Bessemer Bender study in my opinion, is that yeah, these stocks all the ones on this list and a lot of stocks will have negative lifetime returns. Right? But I don't know. I'm not. I'm not saying buy Zoom now, but there's there's trades in here, right? Like there's opportunities to double, triple your money. That's true. Like like GE is probably not going back to their relative size of 2000 or 2005, but it could be a good investment for a certain period of time. Same yeah, with like exactly. City, City Group or something. Yeah, that that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, mo mo most stocks are not worth buying and holding forever. We know this, but you know they fluctuate. Uh, all right, what's this margin debt? Uh, I think this is the first thing you put in the in the doc all day. You don't know what it is. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I've been I've been ten to one. <laughs> I've been sick for three weeks. <laughs> I won't go into the details, but I was telling Ben and Duncan before the show. I've been just like general general malaise, and but now it's like accelerating. I don't know what's going on. I'm like getting sicker. Middle age. What the hell's happening? I don't. I don't it's kids or middle age. Kids going back to school, maybe. I don't know. So my kids, my kids are off this week. There's a there's a week off between camp and school. We're my not quite sure what's what my to do kids with are them. already on week two of school. I don't know what what's happening in Michigan here, but we're going back to school way too early. Oh, week two. They cut off two weeks of my summer. Oh, do you know about this? Here's an activity that the kids have been doing: killing spotted lantern spotted lantern flies. Do you hear about this? No. What's that? I just found out about this. Apparently, there's like a giant infestation, and these are like. I didn't read any articles yet, but these are apparently these bugs are bad for the environment and they're multiplying. And so I've never seen these before. Again, I'm, I'm hearing this from my wife secondhand. So, you know, take this with a gigantic grain of whatever you're going to take it with sand that you're supposed to kill these bugs. And so like Kobe and the kids at the beach were like stomping on them. They're everywhere. And like getting really excited. It reminds me of the movie uh, Starship Troopers, which is obviously one of my favorites. <laughs> of course. So we, after last week, when you said that you really liked the whale, Duncan said like, we should have a Kelshi betting market for Michael for like, movies. Michael likes because Duncan and I said, we would have bet our life savings that you would have hated the whale. And somehow you liked it. And of course you like Starship troopers. I mean, that, that, that was, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like that movie. I love that movie. It was one of my favorite, favorite movies as a child. Starship troopers. Yes. One of I don't my know all, if I ever, that's favorites. always one that I might've caught bits and pieces of on TBS here and there. I don't think I ever watched the whole thing start to finish. Isn't that Tim Allen? No, no, no. You're thinking of uh, what am not I thinking Mars of? Attacks. You're thinking of Galaxy Quest. Okay. I think, that's it. Right? Yeah. Starship Troopers is Casper Van Dean or Deem? Dean. Denise okay. Richards, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, NPH, <laughs> as, I, as I call him. And 
the guy who looked like Rob Lowe, but not Rob Lowe, less handsome Rob Lowe, who was uh, Kelly Kapowski's boyfriend at the max? What I mean, it name? sounds like it sounds like a TV sounds like a TV movie to me. And Gary Busey's son. Okay, Jake. You're not selling. You're not selling it very much to me. Great movie. Well, I didn't okay. even tell you what it's about, but it's just I, well, it's, I, they kill big giant bugs or something, right? Phenomenal. I think that's where you're going with this. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Margin debt as a percent of S and P 500 market cap. This is a good chart because usually you just see the, the number. This is this is the denominator blindness thing. It's been going down for a while, actually. Because the market's so much bigger now, right? Yeah, I guess. But what's more interesting is money market funds. Five and a half trillion dollars in money market funds. All the way up. But again, thanks to Liz and Saunders, you got to adjust it. Money market funds as a percentage of S&P 500 market cap I'm shocked at how, at how low it is. That is pretty good. Are you? It's like, what is that? Uh, 14.5% of market cap, give I or guess take? If you, I guess if you just assume that, that money money was flowing out of money market funds for, what, 12 years probably, as the S&P 500 was going up. But yeah, that that is it. So is this is this future money on the sideline, though, if rates fall, fall back down? I don't know. I feel like cash is cash. Maybe. You know what I mean? Like people, people that earmark their money for their check and whatever, that's not money that's coming to the stock market. I know you're, you're kidding with the money on the sidelines, but. No, but, no, but where did this money come from though? That's, that's the thing we don't know. That's, that, that's what I would love to see that you can't ever tell with flows. Like where, what was this money in? Was it in bonds and it's coming out well, of there? Is it, was it in stocks? It's, it's, it's no, I don't think it's, I think it's more checking account. Say, yeah, it could be. Checking and savings. That's fair. The, the, the whole interest rate thing. I mean, this is like the, the most non-committal thing you could say about the markets and trying to make a prediction, but I really can see really good arguments for like rates are going to go back down to 2% or rates are going to stay at like settle in at three to four or rates are going to stay higher for another two. Like I could, I could make a pretty good argument at all those and, and not be surprised either way at this point. Here's what I think is going to happen. If, if, if I had to make a prediction on, on what the, what's going to happen with the economy, I think I think it's possible we avoid a, re a recession, but we're going to see rolling recessions for the next couple of years in specific industries. We already saw it in tech, right? We saw that in tech in 2022, a lot of layoffs. The housing market is kind of in a recession or it we, was? We saw, we saw it in startups. Um, the housing market is certainly in a recession. Uh, retail stores, department stores are not doing great. I don't know what else is going to, what else is going to happen. Uh, well, commercial real estate, certainly. But I think it's possible you see a series of recessions that hit this industry, that sector, that sector, without dragging the economy down. Or the economy just plunges. That's possible too. The weird thing is, is the economy plunging scenario is is kind of predicated on the economy accelerating now first to have more, like more excess. Like that's, that's what most people don't realize is that most recessions come from excess. And we, we, we got excess in speculation and stuff, but it never was really excess in the economy. And that's what a, like a blow off top in growth would be like an excess. And that would actually lead to probably a bigger downturn in the economy. Was there excess spending? Yeah, but there was also excess savings. So it kind of, it kind of balances out like here, look at this inflation chart that I put in here. And so this is real, real average hourly earnings year over year. And so this, this is again, a, kind of income adjusted for inflation. And we had that period in 2021 and in most of 
2022, and it's finally gone positive where it was below trend, meaning people were falling behind on their incomes. This is something people talk about. But look at, no one ever talks about the above average period of growth we had from 2020 in that first, like look at that almost year long period where we had way above trend and way above inflation. And so what we've seen in terms of the people falling behind is really just balancing out of that huge spike in income growth that we saw before. Right? If you, if again, if kind of like 2022 returns in the market in 2023, if you mash them together, it kind of evens out and balances out. That's kind of the same thing they do with incomes. But no one talks about that period of way above average income growth. They only focus on the below average income growth. Fair? Like everyone is falling yeah. behind, but no one talked about everyone getting ahead first. So, like, that's the excess saving stuff being run off with, with more spending. It's balancing it out. But obviously, the only thing that matters is what happens from here. Do we go back to trend or do we, I don't know. But that, that's the point here, right? We're, we've, we're balancing out a lot of things in terms of the pandemic surge. And some of it is going to look like the economy slowing, whereas most of it is just getting back on trend. Good point. All right. Uh, never seen this one before. Let's move on to real estate. We've got a lot of real estate stuff. Bob Burgess, my former editor at Bloomberg. I used to write there once upon a time. Whatever the section was, it was some new section. We're going to have all these new writers on something, and then it got thrown into the wood chipper. I was... Bloomberg. I can't remember. It wasn't... It was like Bloomberg View and then Bloomberg something else. And the, the something else did make it. So I... Anyway. Uh, I've never seen this before. He said, this is a mind-blowing graph showing the average rate on U.S. mortgages is outstanding. The effective rate that borrowers are paying on their home loans is 3.6%. I've never seen this... I mean, you probably could have backed into this answer somehow, but this is the, the collective mortgages, I guess, and their amounts, and then divide that by the number of people, the mortgages and the rates, and this is, gets you 3.6%, which is, I guess, about what I would expect it to be. Scroll your eyeballs down to the chart from Liz Ann Saunders. It's the same chart. It shows the U.S. effective rate of interest, but it also contrasts it with the current 30-year. And look at that spread. Right. Wild. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, I've never seen this, like, the effective rate before, but it 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 makes sense, and this is explains a lot of going on in the housing market. You saw the Zillow thing, right? 1% down payment program? Yes. I don't think this is as big of a deal as most of some people do. I know some people are saying this is ridiculous. This is like 2008 subprime stuff all over uh -uh, again. Uh-uh, uh-uh, set, set the record straight. Okay, well, I just, first of all, I don't think that many people are probably going to apply. I think this is more good marketing PR by Zillow than anything else because I don't know how many people are even going to be eligible. Glad we got you a Gatorade. You need some electrolytes. Well, it's only for people that are trying to qualify. It's for first-time homebuyers. They're starting in Arizona to spread to other states. But it's for people that need the assistance that are trying to qualify for the FHA loan, which I think you need to put down. I think it's, it's state by state. Minimum 3% or 5% in some well, states. Yeah, and it says Zillow is going to contribute an additional 2% at closing, which I don't know how it all shakes out there with Zillow making a contribution too. But I've, I, a lot of people were like worried about this and like, okay, no, here we this go. Is, this, is, this is not like, oh, 99% leverage for everyone. That's not what this is. Right. I, yeah, I, don't, I don't see this. And the thing is, obviously down payments have gone up, but the, the mortgage payments themselves, the monthly payments have gone up way more on a percentage basis than the down payments. Like obviously it's, it's way more, it's, it's harder for people to come up with down payments with higher housing prices, but it's the monthly payments that's the problem for most people. So this is just increasing a monthly payment even more. True. So I don't think this is going to be a lot. My other question is, how many jobs are even left in the mortgage financing departments right now? There can't be any. I mean, it has to be just tumbleweeds, right? Because no one's going to refinance. No one's refinancing well, speaking right of, now. Speaking about rolling corrections or rolling recessions, yeah, the mortgage industry. 
decimated, right? Mortgage applications are down to the lowest level in over 20 years. Right. Yeah, there, there's no activity. There's no inventory. There's no refinancing going on. Yeah, if at getting to seven and a half percent mortgage loans and maybe get up to eight percent possibly, like I think this is going to finally start having an impact. I don't know what that's going to be, but I think people are just going to. It's just going to keep like slowing, like grinding the gears slower and slower. Wild chart from Mike Zicardi showing uh, high yield rates versus mortgage rates. Want to know why he looked at this chart? You asked him to. I asked him. Well, he he said so he said mortgages are almost close to high yield rates, and I said, "Has that ever happened before?" And he pulled up the chart, and it kind of wild. Yes, in fact, very wild. It's like, wait a minute, mortgage rates are are the same as rates on junk bond on junk. So I, I after we talked about this last week, I wrote a blog post about why are mortgage rates so high, and I looked at the spreads by decade, like the thirty year minus the ten year, and the average is less than 2%. But even in the set, someone was saying, well, in when there's more volatile times and the rates are rising and inflation is rising, it must mean that spreads are wider. But in the 1970s, that's the lowest average spread we've ever had because I only have mortgage data going back to the 70s. 1.3% was the spread. So even if even if we went back to like the, the 2010 spread of 1.7%, we, we'd be talking more like 6% mortgages right now. Big so difference. That, I think the Fed really screwed up the the mortgage market when they bought and sold all those mortgage bonds. I think like they're going to be they have to be the ones that come in and, and narrow this spread some at some point, and maybe they're never going to want to. You know what? How about this? Let's that's a good that's a good let's plant that flag. The Fed will start buying mortgage bonds before they lower interest rates. True or false? If if they if they really wanted to like make things function better in the housing market, maybe they're not going to. But that. Because I think the, the Fed is obviously trying to slow the economy, bring prices down, but are they trying to really crash the housing market? I doubt it. Well, I'm sure that they thought in their minds raising rates so high would would slow the housing market or would bring prices down. Don't you think? I would. I wouldn't yes. be surprised if they. I'm sure they wanted like a ten or twenty percent correction. They haven't gotten it. I just. I don't think they thought through the ramifications of going so fast from where they were to where they are. With the combination of them stopping the purchases. Yeah. All right. Uh, the rise of the four-bedroom house. So this is from 1973 to today. Four-bedroom household. This is percentage of new single-family houses by bedroom number. It went from 20-some percent in 1973 to 48% now. Three-bedroom houses went from 65% to 43%. This is another reason that houses are more expensive these days. They're bigger. There's more amenities. I grew up in a three-bedroom house. Well, there was one bedroom downstairs, but I don't know if that really counts. I guess I guess it's four-bedroom. The first house we lived in was three bedrooms. My brother and I had to share a bunk bed. I guess when we moved in, it was four bedrooms. So we all got our own bedroom. My parents are still in that same house. You know, the layout, we've spoken about old houses in the past. The layout of the house that I grew up in was terrible. It was, I guess, a split level. So you walk up the steps to the door and you open the door and there's like a little, is it a foyer? Yeah, that's my my parents still have that. My parents' it's like a foyer. level. It's, it's yeah. Like a, yeah. So so there's a downstairs with that li- one little bedroom and like a living room and a bathroom down there and then yep. the laundry room. But then upstairs, you've got the living room to the left, dining room behind it, kitchen next to it. So you're describing my parents' house right now. It, yeah, I grew okay, up in the same too. house. One bathroom and then one bedroom, bedroom next to it, and then the master bedroom. So I slept like five feet from my mom. Yes. Which yeah. is right next, and 10 feet from the kitchen. 
Yes, that's true. Everything did feel right on top of each other. Not not great. I sent you the the TikTok of the 1990s HGTV thing. Did you watch that one? Uh uh-uh. uh. It was I I, I slacked. Where'd you send it? Oh, I slacked it to our Animal Spirits channel. Oh, I missed it. Okay. It's pretty fun, but it's funny because they they're talking about all these things in the 90s that houses were like, and it 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 when you think about the the, the lady goes, oh, this is way too open. Close it off. Let's close it off. And <laughs> and like it's it's pretty funny. So yeah, I think the house that I just described is like what a lot of people grew up in, right? Yes. Back to my point that like back in the day, no one really thought about this stuff. And that's why I blame HGTV for- what, Wait, what, you're blaming them for a good thing? Well, no, I blame HGTV for jacking up the price of houses. It's, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Houses would be way cheaper if it wasn't for HGTV. How about this? Here's the take. Home prices were way undervalued for like several decades because- because the quality wasn't great. I, yeah, I think we- Now, now we're, we're pay, you're paying up for quality. That's part of it. I, I think, yeah, we, that's part of it. And the demographic thing obviously happened too. But yeah, they're, you're right. People didn't pay, and they're, the renovations people do now, and it, it wasn't like that back in the day. Well, Ben, look at the median sale price from Redfin. It's been rising since 2000, well, I, granted home prices took a bit of a haircut after the GFC, but- Median sales price pulled back a tiny bit, approaching new all-time highs, and active listings destroyed. So this is the thing that the Fed probably didn't anticipate, was that raising rates was going to kill demand. They, that part they probably understood. But I don't think they – they might not have realized that it was going to kill supply as well. I don't think they thought, pe- no, I don't think they, they thought that at all. You would have right, thought because, that supply would have risen because it would be harder to sell, but the demand still outweighed the supply. So it didn't really destroy demand. It, it more destroyed supply, unfortunately. They killed the wrong side of it. Yes. Right. Which, and, again, and I don't know what they could have done because I, I do think that if, if rates, if mortgage rates go back down to, even for, from here, if they go back to 6 or even 5%, the demand is going to come back in. Well, that's the thing. If, if, they, if they did what I suggested and they step in to, to tighten rates down to 6, 6.5, whatever it is, and then you get like more more all-time highs in home prices. Well, it's hard to have a slowing economy, at least traditionally, if the housing market is on fire. This is, this is like the 2010s. The Fed wanted to raise inflation and they couldn't. The Fed cannot fix the housing market. The only thing that can fix the housing market is if we build more houses. And that the Fed can't do that. Right. So right? Land, land, Unless the Fed land. starts giving out construction loans to builders, like the, they're not going to be able to fix the housing market regardless of what they do. Lance Lambert tweeted, U.S. home prices, as measured by the Zillow Home Value Index, set a new all-time high in July, but when you dig deeper, you'll find there's a lot, still a lot of red. The home price correction has packed a bigger punch at the top end of the market. So San Francisco, upper tier, down 13.5%. Seattle, upper tier, down 10.5%. Austin, down 11 at the upper tier. And you know at the lower price tier, it's basically almost all-time highs across the board. Middle a little bit less, but still, you know, I saw there's a house in my neighborhood that seemingly has been like not abandoned because it's still, it's, you know, it's a big house in good condition, a decent condition. And I walked past it and I'm like, oh, you know, let me, let me check it on Zilla. And it's pending for sale. And I think it's being sold. It's a, it's a really big house. I think it's being sold for like $1.8 million, $1.9 million. The, the mortgage payment on that. I can't like even f- imagine. $14,000 a month. What would have been a year ago at that price? Eight grand? Is it a fair analogy or am I stretching here? The upper end 
of the housing market was like Series E private companies where they were closer to the public market and eventually it filtered its way down to Series D and C. Is this going to eventually bleed into the middle market? I look at it the other way. I think that there's just always going to be more demand for the lower middle tier of housing prices and the upper tier. There's just fewer buyers there. So it's going to be yeah. it's going to be harder to ever have that same demand for multi-million dollar houses. Yeah, I buy that. It's just a smaller pool of buyers. I, I buy that. All right, this is interesting from the Wall Street Journal. I've never thought about this before, but they, they're talking about how home... Americans are bailing on their home insurance. I never, I thought that home insurance was like car insurance, like you had to have it. They say 12% of all homeowners don't purchase homeowners insurance. I didn't know, I thought the banks wouldn't, maybe this is people who own their houses outright. I so didn't think you could do that. I think, I think at origination, I'm making this up. I think at origination, you have to have insurance. Right, and then you just let it lapse. So they-, they and you're, you're allowed to cancel. That, that's, that's, that's crazy. I can't imagine not having insurance in my house. I can't either. Needless to say, it's 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 like almost everybody's largest asset. And they're talking about how it's it's becoming really bad in places like Florida and California because of hurricanes and wildfires. They interview this guy, Larry Farenholt, hasn't had home insurance more than 25 years. He estimates he'd save more than $50,000 on his 1,100-square-foot Los Angeles home. It would probably be financially devastating if I lost my house, but I have enough money and savings to move into a condo in that event. I, yeah, I just can't see the, the, the trade-off there. But the point is, in places like Florida where it's becoming just ridiculously expensive to to do this. A lot of people are almost having to, like they can't afford it. So this is why my biggest climate hedge is living in the Midwest by the Great Lakes. In like 30 years, we're gonna get a reverse migration of these people who all move south. People are moving, have been moving south for like the last 20 years. And all you hear all summer is people in the south complaining it's 115 degrees or whatever. That's not going to get better in the coming years. We're gonna have a reverse migration and people are gonna to wanna to be by water and they're gonna want more, uh, they want a better climate and come to the Midwest. Mid the Midwest in like the 2040s and 2050s is gonna be the biggest real estate market in the, in the country. Timestamp. Until you get the dust the dust thing for like from Interstellar and all the crops are killed. By the way, I mentioned that because I rewatched Interstellar first time in a long time. I don't know, when did that movie come out? 2010? I have no idea. I didn't love it on the first watch. It actually, I think it, it ages better on a rewatch. Rewatched it a couple years ago too. 2014. So the, I think I liked the first, so that movie pulls at your heartstrings, right? Yes. Uh, with the kids stuff. Um, I like the, I love the first third. I think it, you know, it's, it got, it got wacky. It was hard to end. land the plane. Yeah, and so so Robin was Robin jumped in halfway through with me. She's like, "This is so dumb," but she wouldn't stop watching. And then at the end, like with the bookshelf, she's like, "Okay, all right, this is." Right. But uh, I'm not sure if I love that movie, but I definitely enjoyed the shit out of it. Like I said, I the first time I watched it, I think because of the ending, I didn't like it that much. But then I watched it again, and I I liked it more the second watch. Yeah, good movie. McConaughey great. has a very good. McConaughey is so good. He has a great crying scene in that movie. So good in that. He wrote, so he wrote about it in his book, how he's, he like gets himself psyched up and he told, who's the director of that one? Is it, is it a Fincher movie? It's, it's Chris, no, it's Christopher Nolan. Or Nolan, sorry. Yeah, that, it was, it was, yeah, the kid stuff is tough, really tough. He said he got it for the crying scene. He said he got himself all psyched up and he didn't want to do more than one take. And he said, he walked into the room and he said, Nolan, let's go start filming now. I'm ready. He like, whatever he does, like get himself ready to cry. That was a good one. All right. Amazon has talked with Disney on a new ESPN streaming service. Maybe more notable is that ESPN is considering charging between $20 and $35 for the new service. That seems high to me. So what is this for? This, this is for people that cut the cord but still want to watch sports? 
Yes, or people that want to cut the cord but aren't doing it because of sports. Yeah, but the problem is, all right, so so you get you get ABC and you get ESPN. Although ABC is on basic cable, right? So on basic cable, you get ABC, you get NBC, you get CBS. So you've got all like the local games. But you need ESPN for, is that Sunday night football? Whatever it is. You need ESPN for that. You need ESPN for basketball. What about, but what about TNT? Right, that's the thing. The sports are going to keep going wider. And maybe just the hope is that Amazon and Apple start buying them all up and you can get them all through there through a bundle. But I think their hope is like- Feels like that, that's, that's the direction this is going, right? I think they're thinking like we used to have, I don't know what it is, 100 million people who subscribed to cable and they had ESPN. But if we can get, I think the number they said was like 12 million to sign up for this since it's going to be so expensive. It's going to be the same economics. That's their hope. That just seems really high to me. I'm sure there are so many diehard people who watch sports, but that's a tough ask. I mean, cutting the cord has become very expensive. So, I mean, I'm sure what Disney's going to do eventually is it's going to be, are you going to be able to pay for Prime plus Disney Plus plus Hulu plus ESPN, whatever they're calling it, and get them all in one bundle? And that's yeah, kind yeah. of a bundle again. Well, D- Disney does it already. You get you get ESPN, Disney Plus, and Hulu. Yeah. So maybe Amazon's part of that and ESPN but I feel is part like of that y- too. I'm I'm paying for cable and, and every the only thing I don't pay for is Paramount. Okay, I pay for that. We're watching a new series on that one. I'll talk about recommendations. Yeah, I don't know. This is why I'm keeping the bundle for as long as I can, though, because yeah, but th- but I'm saying now it's 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 double the cost because I'm we're, I'm paying for the bundle and for everything else. Yes, you're screwed either way. Whatever you do, you're screwed. But that's one of the reasons that I like keeping the cable bundle is because I get all the sports channels if I want. Like March, I love March Madness. It's on True TV and TNT and TBS and CBS, right? It's on all four of those channels. I need to have cable to get that, right? I think. All right. Survey of the week. We haven't done one of these in a while. Uh, from yougov.com. Six in 10 regard unemployment as a very or somewhat serious national problem. Just 24% say the jobless rate dropped in the last month, and only 34% say job numbers increasing. Though that has been the case on the official government numbers every month since the economy began recovering from COVID-19. This is back to your point about how many people understand their actual financial picture, how many people understand the economy itself. Americans are nearly twice as likely to say the economy is shrinking than growing. 38% versus 21%. 44% of it say it's currently in a recession, and 22% of recession is likely in the next year. All right, so I have two thoughts on this. Number one, there's no information, there's no there's no takeaway, inf- there's no actionable information in these surveys. They're meaningless. They don't mean anything. As far as, if you're thinking about this through the investor lens, there's no right. actionable insights here. Yes, you can't, Unless, ga- you can't, I don't think you can't gauge sentiment through surveys anymore. No, you really can't. Unless it's, you know, completely extreme, fine. But the other thing is, so it doesn't matter at all from, there's no actionable takeaway. However, I do think it matters how when you ask people how things are going, people are generally saying it's bad. And we've spoken about this a, a billion times. There's a million reasons why they're saying that, even though, you but know, they might people not- are always just going to say it's bad from, from now on because- Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the camp I'm in. People just say things are bad. One of the luxuries we have today is we have time. Like I mentioned that book I was reading about the how in like the 1800s, no one had time to, re- to retire. People were working like 60 hour weeks in the farms. In the past, people didn't have time to worry about stuff. Like they didn't have time to watch cable news all the time. They didn't have time to scroll their phone anytime and look at all the bad news all the time because people were, were too busy working and then doing nothing else. And today we have the luxury of being comfortable and seeing all the bad news. And so I think people just are always going to be on the pessimistic side going forward because we have the ability to see it all now and hear about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Permanent. All right. So speaking of cutting the cord. Every day, about 25,000 Americans cancel their cable cord. 
Do you think those people are doing that after talking to the retention department about getting a better deal like I do? <laughs> uh, that's back to the same level as it was in 1992. That's kind of wild. Do you remember when we used to have, used to cancel the cord and you'd have to literally bring your cable box in, like your Comcast box yeah. back to Comcast? Well, I, I bet you still do. No, you can send it through the mail now. They send you a box uh, and you send it through the mail. But that was a pain in the butt. You used to do it in college, right? Yeah, you'd have to like wait in line and give them your box back. There was a there was a podcast on the town with uh, Matt Bellany and Julie Alexander. They estimate that Apple Plus has 15 million subscribers in the United States. I heard that one. Very, very low. I'm surprised Apple just doesn't give it away with an iPhone these days just to get people on there. It's a good point. Why even charge? Right? Just give it away. How much is it a month? It's not that much. Nine ninety nine bucks. So I have fifteen. It, so. so fifteen million, hundred twenty a year. It's one point eight billion dollars in revenue. Certainly ain't nothing. Although to them, it's basically nothing. Yeah, give but it away. I mean, give, give away a three-month thing and then have to give your credit card information to do it on Apple Pay. I think they probably do. How many people would keep it? Yeah. Um, all right, Ben, I've got a bone to pick, a major bone to pick. Okay. It's a big bone. Okay. I ordered- For the, for the man who has no pet peeves. I ordered, this is not a pet peeve. Okay. I ordered two hex-clad pans. You ever hear of the brand hex-clad? No, but I guess your other pans didn't work out very well, huh? Well, I ordered the, the non-stick Amazon set for like- a, 80 bucks and just terrible. So it's time to grow up and get grown up pans. So I got two. Uh, they were not cheap at all. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute, where are my pans? So I logged on and it says your order has been delivered. So I'm like, no, it hasn't. What? So I see the shipping address went to, I won't say his last name, but his first name is Brian. The last name is a name that I've never heard before. The address is an address that I've never seen before. It went to Torrance, California. What the hell is going on? Was my shipment hacked or something? So I emailed them and they said like, well, this is the address we have on file. You're, you're welcome to take it up with UPS. And I'm like, no, you take it up with UPS. Wait, Amazon said this or you bought it to someone else? No, Hexclad said this. Okay. So I'm like, why should I, what? No, I got hacked or it got hacked on the back end. I didn't... I didn't enter the shipping address. I don't know where this is. Now, maybe from their point of view, like they're like, well, how do how do they know that I didn't that I'm not just stealing, right? That I didn't send this to a friend. Yeah. But so what do I do? You that's where you left it? Well, I emailed them again. I'm like, no, please do the right thing. I I, I think I got hacked. I don't know how this happened. Do you have the, the tracking number? I would call UPS and say, hey, you dropped this off at the wrong place somehow. I it could be a UPS problem. <sighs> I'm going to call my, I think I'm going to call my credit card and, and see if they'll take this up. But isn't this nuts? How does this happen? I don't know. You with credit cards and deliveries, not having a Although good I summer. Did, I, I did get scammed on Instagram. The downside of Instagram knows me too well. So I got another giant shirt on. This is uh, homage, I think it's called. There's a knockoff and they got me. So I see the commercial, I see the advertisement on my phone. I'm like, oh, wow, these prices are, these are great prices. So I bought like a bunch of gear. I'm like, wait a minute. This doesn't look like homage. It looks, it was like an homage knockoff. So I went to the website to compare and contrast. Yeah, it was a knockoff. So the quality's not as good? I don't know. I haven't received, I haven't received oh. it. I assume it's knockoffs. Okay. So now, yeah. So Instagram, you know, as listeners know, I'm, that's where I get most of my clothes these days. I've been targeted, Ben. I'm not sure how I feel about this. You know, like this has traditionally been for women. Is Spanx the brand? 
where you like, it's like a, it's like a form fitting. It, it holds yeah. your stuff in. So there's, so I saw an ad for something called shape slim and I have to say, <laughs> looks very good for men, for men, it's like spanks for men. It takes, it takes, it takes the belly and it just like, I don't know what it does with it, but just like makes it totally flat. How uncomfortable would that be though? Well, it's, you got two, you got two things going against you. Number one, it doesn't look, I'm sure it's not the most comfortable thing in the world, but then what happens? Uh, so people are looking, you're like, oh, wow, he looks, looks pretty good. <laughs> and you go to and the then, beach. You go to, then you go to the beach and you're a slob. <laughs> Get to wear a swim shirt, I guess. But so I don't, I don't think I care enough. Okay. In fact, in fact, I don't care enough. I will never buy that. All right. One last thing. This really grinds my gears. I know we spoke about this in the past many times. DoorDash. So Robin went out with her friends. I have not used it in a long time. I got, I, I'm kind of was over it now. I'm not going to pay up for it anymore. Robin went out with her friends over the weekend. So I was left to eat dinner by myself. I had ramen. Love ramen. Spicy ramen. Very good. All right. So my ramen bowl was $17. The delivery fee was $249. The fees and taxes were $447. And the tip was $4. So I paid $28 for a ramen bowl that cost $17. Should have gone to pick it up. Well, I put it up. I mean, yeah, but I was with the kids and it was like, I didn't feel like it. You're paying up for convenience. It's, that's on you now. You can't complain about DoorDash anymore. It's on you. I, it's just crazy. It is, but. So much money. So go get it. I'm not feeling sorry for you anymore for paying up for DoorDash. You've been complaining about this for three years. Kids were in jammies. <laughs> no, but I don't use it. I, this is why I don't use it that much. I would, but I was reminded. Yeah, but you, that, that's why you, for, for this business to work, you have to pay up for it, unfortunately. All right, recommendations. I got a couple. Small uh, ears. Fly on the Wall, the Dana Carvey, David Spade podcast. That's Steve Martin and Martin Short on. And I just love those guys. Why don't I listen to that podcast more? They're great. I, <sighs> it's so I need good. to get it back in my rotation. And I, I just love the interaction that those guys have. And the thing is, like, they rip on each other incessantly, but they're, like, they're just very positive guys. They're not, like, you know, a lot of comedians are, like, it seems like they have a lot of, like, interior pain and, like, suffering, and they then they become comedians. These guys are the opposite. I love both of their books, Born Standing Up with Steve Martin's, and I must say is Martin Short's. And they're, they're, Steve Martin's almost 80 years old. I think Martin Short's in his 70s. I watched, I still watch that show, Only Murders in the Building. It's on season three now. Paul Rudd's on, and Meryl Streep is on. And it's, it's it's kind of a cheesy show in some ways still like it kind of like Ted Lasso. Like there's a bit of cheesiness that you're willing to let go because it has, because they're like, seems so positive. So I'm still watching that. I actually, Wait, can I just say what thing? I think I'm pretty sure that Danny Carvey had a rough childhood. He did. Just, yes. Yeah, he did. But, but those, yeah, those guys, I, I just love the fact that they're so positive. I've, the older I get, the more I want just to have more positive people in my life and not people complaining all the time. Uh, uh speaking of comedy, did you see that? I don't know why this was going around on, on the interwebs this week. Did you see Will Ferrell's audition for SNL? I did. Pretty good. Yeah, I, I think I've seen that before. His, he, in, pretends, he pretends to be a cat, and he's, he's, so he's, in, his, he's, in, he's in his work office, and he's, he, he picks up the phone and says, uh, hold on, I'm eating lunch or whatever, whatever he says. And then he just pretends to be a, a cat, like hitting the yarn ball or something. It's very funny. In college, we had one of our friends owned the greatest SNL Will Ferrell years, and we, we would watch it like probably once a month at least. There was, there was, there was no bigger phenom in my lifetime than him on SNL. Yeah, the Farley one is pretty close for me. Uh, I actually watched the new Adam Sandler movie on Netflix, the Bat Mitzvah one, and his, his his two daughters are in it. I think you should watch it. I, I, my wife and I were just looking for something to watch on Sunday night, and we put it on, and 
it was like a more toned down Sandler than I'm used to. Like for one of the reasons his comedies haven't worked for me for the past 20 years is because they're just so over the top and like yeah. not funny. But this yeah. one was more toned down and it was about his daughters having a bat mitzvah, which I, I've been to one bat mitzvah in my life. I kind of, you, I'm sure you've been to many <laughs> and it, I, I, it really did like boggle my mind that it was kind of like a wedding for this 13 year old girl. It was like my wife's cousin's daughter or something. And uh, they really nailed that whole thing. But Sandler's two daughters were in it. I'm like, oh boy, this could go wrong. And they're actually pretty good. And he, I looked at it, he is like the dad of these teen girls. And I, and I feel like I'm going to blink and my two daughters are going to be teenagers. And so I'm look, I'm watching the movie from the dad perspective as Adam Sandler as the dad. And it was like a 6.0, but like it, it was, it way defied expectations. I thought it was going to be awful and it was actually pretty good. Is his wife in it? His wife's in it too, but she's not, she doesn't play his wife. She plays like a friend's uh-huh. wife. So it's a family affair, but it, it's it's actually pretty funny. I will watch it. You, I mentioned Paramount Plus. We're watching the Joe Pickett series on Paramount Plus. Who's that? Uh, my f- all-time favorite uh, novel about a Wyoming game warden. They turned it into a TV show, and they, they there's no way they could top the books. The books it's a CJ Box books of Joe Pickett. I've I I read one every year. I'm on like the 23rd and 24th one, and. It's about a Wyoming game warden who is investigating murders and the, the TV, it has a little bit of like a CBS show to it. Like the vibes of the acting, it's like the actors aren't like amazing, but the story is so good and they, they picked the best book to do, do it on from the series. So I'm watching it in three episodes and we're, we're, we like it. It's good. Yeah, it's good. It's not like, it's not, again, the acting is not like you have to look past the acting a little bit, but it's, it, the story is good and you get to see Wyoming. Uh, I watched River Wild last night, not the River Wild, but River Wild. The Netflix one. And I'm I'm probably two thirds of the way through. I'm very surprised at the Rotten Tomatoes rating. So the audience gives it a 35. The critics give it a 77. It stinks. I mean, I'm going to finish it, but it's right? it's not good. That's what yeah, I felt. Gonna, I watched half of it, and I'm like, oh, I got to finish it now. But it's not good. It's not good at all. I'm sure the ending is not better. Like it's just not great. Uh, if you haven't seen Interstellar, it, I mean, it's it's absolutely worth watching, even though it gets goes a little bit off the rails, but. Uh, all right, I, I watched, where, where did I find this? Maybe Prime. I don't know how I missed this movie. I really, really don't. Uh, it's called Fanboys. Ben, have you ever heard of this? Is this like the Star Wars one? Yeah. Like they go to Star Wars convention? Yeah. I must have watched it a while ago. I cannot remember it though. So this is directly in my wheelhouse. It's like a silly stoner movie with all the people, Seth Rogen, Jay... Barachel, Baruchel, okay. Barachel, Kristen Bell, Chris Marquette, and Sam Huntington are total, I mean, you know their faces if you don't know the name. And then a million cameos, Shooter, Shooter McGavin, Carrie Fisher, uh, Kevin Smith, Bill Shatner. Uh, Jeez, Will Danny, Forte, Craig Robinson. Danny Trejo. I forgot Yeah, I mean, one. and uh, it's not great. There was a few really big laughs for me. Uh, I just, uh, 2009, I don't know is how I missed this Kevin one. Smith movie? Uh, no. Uh, he's just in it. He's just in it. Who who directed it? Uh, I was looking at that. Uh, Kyle Newman. What else did this guy do? Okay. I don't think anything. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how this one escaped me. Uh, anyway, it's not certainly not, certainly certainly not a great movie. But if you're looking for like a dumb comedy with laughs from the from the crew that you love that you never saw, you could do worse. All right. You came on strong in the end. I think you, I mean, it was still like two-thirds of me, one-third of you, but you came on strong. Thank you. Listen, uh, I've got this weird, I don't know what it is, just under the weather. Three weeks right. running. Keep drinking, uh, keep drinking Gatorade. Animalspiritspod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. <laughs>